when I was flying home after being kicked out of Fountain Valley School, a little scared and nervous to see my dad, who picked me up at the airport in New York. First words out of his mouth were, you look like a drunk Indian. And I did. I had a bowler hat, long hair, a pinstripe suit, which was a little too big in the shoulders. And I felt like a drunk Indian, too. And I didn't think my dad would ever talk to me again. He took me back home to New York, Pelham. And then I realized my parents were divorced. They weren't even living in the same room. My mom and dad weren't together. My dad was living up downstairs in the guest room. My mom was in the master bedroom. I didn't understand what was going on. Divorce was obviously what was going on. But my dad was so livid, he couldn't find anything good to say. But my mom, with their loving way, showed me a beautiful gift, giving me 200 silver dollars in the treasure chest that I still have to this day. They said Gary Lavinson honor roll because I was on the honor roll when I got kicked out of school because of my artwork. That's why I was on the honor roll. With that $200, I managed to buy a used VW, 63 VW Bug and still have enough money to pull the engine out and replace the clutch plate with the idiot manual, which is what I got to work on Volkswagens. It was a book that came out in the old days. Idiot manual for the complete idiot. Anybody can fix a Volkswagen Bug. It was amazing. And that Volkswagen Bug became my home because my mom said to me, either you go or you get a job. I wasn't about to get a job, so I left. I left in my Volkswagen Bug that day. Started heading back to Fountain Valley School, which I was told not to come back to. This was only six months after I was kicked out for at least a year, but I had to do it. Don't know why. Just had to drive back to Colorado. 1971, Pennsylvania. I was driving down Route 80 in a 63 Volkswagen Bug early evening in September. Just over the crest of another Pocono mountain, the sun went down. I saw a hitchhiker. He was underneath the rays of a 35-foot-high streetlight. I pulled over. He ran into the shadows that surrounded my blue bug. He opened the door to my car. Interior light dimly revealed his young, happy face. The truck sped by, whipping us with their headlights and screaming at us with their engines, while glorious Trump's defiant electric guitars played in my head. He jumped in in and my foot hit the gas and he pulled ahead. I watched the street light in my rearview mirror, the rays of like invisible teepees in the night. One by one, they vanished. I thought of a soldier during the war looking out over a fence into the fields where his barracks stood. Lonely and simple, light broke the darkness in the Indonesian fog. One light post over the roof each barrack, one purpose for each bullet in each hand with one trigger finger, each man with a million thoughts of regret, 
Each battle, million bullets fly with one purpose. Where was I? Far away. Perhaps I would soon be there with them. The draft had not caught me yet, but the magnetic pull from some gigantic desire had. I had something to do, and the army was not part of it. I suddenly remembered I was driving down the highway with a new friendly companion, safe momentarily from the war. I didn't notice till Kurt introduced himself that he had a small puppy inside his oversized coat. I laughed when I saw the little dog's ridiculous smile. Kurt did too. We were instant friends with respect that normally would have taken years to cultivate. Two travelers with the common bond of the highway. Kurt was running back home. I was running away from home. Common bond of the highway. We drove through the night with Kurt's little dog hardly making a sound. My mind was filled with visions. I heard the theme song from a movie about a young hero destined to win his own path. The future was filled with endless possibilities, and I felt in my soul I was free in my own car, going anywhere I pleased. Kurt and I talked through the night. He was 17, and after having been gone for eight months, his parents knew little of his whereabouts and less of his return. We pulled to the side of the road, catnapped in a few times during the night, but the cold and the screaming trucks kept us going. By five o'clock, following afternoon, we were 60 miles from his parents' home, south of Chicago. Kurt was getting nervous. It had been a long time since he had seen his parents or his sister's faces. He showed me a bunch, a batch of pictures of the people he had been with and the places he had been in the past eight months. There was a past that followed him that I could only catch a glimpse of from the pictures, but it intrigued me. I became an old Indian in a teepee, listening to the words of an old warrior of another tribe. The fire smoldering and the sound of drums and wooden flutes surged in my mind. I listened intently. Kurt spoke with uncertainty, as if what he had experienced may not have been real. The Indian tribal music played on in my head as Kurt told the story of how he had left his Illinois home on a converted school bus, was headed east, driven by a 50-year-old Pied Piper, a man who had dreams of alternative lifestyles and glad to take any wandering adventurer under his wings. Apparently, Kurt had lived in the school bus with several other nomadic types, also all ended up in Pennsylvania, and started a commune on an old farm. The entire adventure was led by this old idealistic visionary. Kurt spoke of the old master with respect and reverence. I thought he must have been some modern outcast who could never accept anyone else's path like outcasts from over the, all over the world and all throughout humanity. He had profound self-made direction that would repel or hypnotize all who came in contact with him. Kurt had learned he needed and decided to return to his parents' home like the prodigal son I was his escort.
When we arrived at Kurt's neighborhood, we, we drove right past his house. I could see his mother and father reading in their Midwestern home through the picturesque living room window. Kurt just motioned me onward. He was not ready to return yet. First, he wanted to see his old friends, who we explained were probably getting ready to cruise the main strip in their parents' cars. The rows of houses in the little neighborhood were peaceful. The pale light of television from the driveways and the doorways all mimicked each other. Family after family prepared for their evening rituals of relaxation and preparation for the following day. It was glorious middle America. We found Dave and John and Marshall in front of Dave's house early, only two blocks away from Kurt's house. When we drove up to where they were standing, Kurt let out a well-restrained greeting. He was being cool. After a few minutes of confused questions and answers, Kurt was once again in rank with his fellow tribesmen. He had never left it, it seemed to his friends, and to celebrate his forgotten return, we got all got into Marshall's father's car went for a dry drive up the old main strip. Kurt's buddies were full of excitement, and I sensed he was less interested in their antics than even he realized. I sensed that Kurt was at a turning point in his life. And this little dog was in the car with Dave and Marshall, but driving in different directions. I was watching from another lifetime. Through the cigarette smoke, I could see Dave and John and Marshall driving in circles and Kurt staring straight ahead. I could swear I saw Kurt growing up before my very eyes. Now he is a man. Music played in my ears and I couldn't describe, but my heartstrings vibrated and I cried inside. I saw myself as an observer of Kurt's final steps into maturity. Kurt insisted on his friend's promise of secrecy about his return. He had decided he wanted to to stay away one more night. We left Dave and John and Marshall and drove up to sleep on the ground out by the freeway. Kurt would be ready to face his family the next day. His last night as a runner was spent among the brush and tall grass in a field near the freeway. All night the cars and trucks told stories of American lifestyles. None of them knew the story of Kurt and I, but all knew the path we were on. I heard Desire call my name again, and the saxophone blew in my heart with desperation, like the sound of a wild animal, until I fell asleep. The next morning was beautiful. Blue sky and gentle breeze, Kurt was ready to go home. I drove him to his family's house, As he went inside, I waited outside until he signaled me to come inside. It was a bit of an ordeal. The shock of having Kurt return unannounced seemed to keep everyone quiet, or maybe it was my presence as a stranger. I don't know. I was introduced as Kurt's good friend, and it seemed to make me feel a bit more relaxed. I smiled at Kurt, and he winked and smiled as I extended my hand in greeting to his family. His mother was very friendly to me and thanked me for bringing him home. She offered me 
the couch and I accepted it as my temporary bed. Kurt's father had to leave for work. He gave Kurt a slap on the back and a long look of love while Kurt bowed his head. It's good to have you back, he said earnestly. Are you going to stay? Kurt looked up in surprise and said, Of course I'm going to stay, Dad. Then I'll see you when I get home and we'll talk about your plans, he said. Then he glanced at me and smiled and he was out the door. Kurt went into his old room and dropped his belongings. I could tell he was glad to be back. Kurt's two sisters were very quiet and they seemed to disappear. Mrs. Miller offered me some coffee and I sat down to drink it. I pulled my guitar out of its case and made myself comfortable. I was hoping my music would attract the interest of Kurt's younger sisters. I strummed the strings and made luring melodies. Finally, one came out into the living room. I was curious to look into Marianne's eyes. She was the older one of the two. Only 16, but a Midwestern classic with wide cheekbones and wholesome body. Her eyes darted ever resting, never resting, never falling in line with my gaze. Nevertheless, something something about her presence was calling me. I dared not answer. I could not afford the kind of love she deserved. For a few seconds, I imagined myself settling down and marrying this girl with simple beauty, Marianne Miller, and I in our Midwestern house, happy ever after. I rescue her from a life of working at Dog and Suds, and she rescues me from a life of wandering. Kurt becomes my brother-in-law, and his father helps me find a job. I become real American. My guitar strings sang, and music that came from my fingers danced up on my desire, stirring me to glance toward the highway. I was reminded once again I had something to do. Adventure. I saw Marianne look into my soul in search of a spark that might be used to light her future. I could offer her nothing. So she put on her uniform and got ready to go work at Dog and Suds. The Miller's house was small and I started to feel in the way. After one night, Cramped sleeping on the couch, I made my plans to leave. My mu- my muffler was so rotted that the car was noises. It sounded like a, an airplane when I started it up. It was obvious to Kurt and I that I couldn't get far with that. The police would probably stop me in every town. Since Chicago is only about 35 miles away, I decided to take a ride in some of the auto part stores and try to find a good deal on a new muffler. It was another crisp morning, and my little Volkswagen with the airplane engine flew down the highway to Chicago. I bought the muffler by noon for $15. I started back to Kurt's house to use his father's tools to put it on. On the way back, I picked up a hitcher, a bald-headed, discharged army boy, He had shaved his head and sprayed it with Nair hair remover daily until the sergeant thought he was weird. He got a discharge. He was on his way home, and I only gave him a ride for 10 miles or so. 
He was grinning ear to ear the whole ride. He told me stories of the Army and boot camp that made my stomach turn. He would have done anything to get out. I knew the draft board was over my left shoulder. Somehow I would escape the Army and hopefully still keep my hair on my head. A lonesome bugle blew in my head and I could see Army barracks again with one light over each roof of each bunkhouse. One bullet in my gun, and I could shoot it a thousand times. I had something to do, and I was free to do it. But the Army threatened my whole existence. I tried to imagine myself as an American soldier. I looked at the near-haired ex-Army boy. I looked at my eyes in the rear view mirror. My eyes and his eyes carried the same innocence. He was young and confused, but he felt triumphant. But to the, what society did he now belong? He could look at me and feel intim- and not feel intimidated because of my obvious anti-military appearance. But to whom else could he relate? Did his family sit respectfully at his presence? Would he ever feel he belonged in an American again? In the sound of his laugh, I could hear the many doubts he that now plagues him. I dropped him off at a huge green highway sign that read the name of the towns of which he was destined. As he got out of the car, he pointed to the sign and yelled, Look at all those fucking bullet holes. Somebody else didn't think that much of this town either. I laughed and waved goodbye and was lost in, in my rearview mirror. I noticed all the way back to Grant Park that every roadside sign was full of holes. When I got back to Kurt's house, he was waiting to help me remove and install my new muffler. I thought it was going to be easy. Ha! There were kids playing in the street and driveways of the little Midwestern neighborhood was humming with activity, and now I was part of it. Whenever I attempt to work on a car, I feel instant communication with the god of labor and the mechanical knowledge. The only god who knows how to make masses of American nobodies feel important. To the only god who knows what it means to be in tune. I was on my back getting greasy, getting to the point of getting extremely frustrated at some very stubborn bolts. A small AM radio blared in Kurt's garage. Commercial songs, fast-talking DJs all streamed together, made the perfect atmosphere for fixing a muffler. Kurt's father was home, and a few of Kurt's neighborhood pals came by to help. I broke a stud, and the new muffler was offering plenty of resistance from falling easily into place. Everyone took turns trying to help, and finally Kurt's father and I smashed the muffler into place with a rubber mallet. My little bug was purring quietly and loaded my belongings into it and made my final farewell to Kurt and his family. My eyes flew up to an aerial viewpoint above the neighborhood. I could see all the kids playing on the streets. I could see all the houses with their cars parked in front. I could see Kurt shaking my hand and Mr. Miller glance at each other knowingly. 
They were observing their son Kurt wave goodbye to his last moments as a wanderer. I could see me driving away, all ready to shoot my bullet again. A hundred miles from Chicago, I picked up two girls hitchhiking. The afternoon was shining, and so was I, and so was my blue Volkswagen bug. Libby and Karen, the two girls, were friendly. They got in the car, and my mind was racing along with the engine. I fantasized that night around the campfire. Libby would find me suddenly irresistible and find a way to keep Karen occupied and crawl into my sleeping bag, fulfilling my wildest expectations. Oh, how the, the day shines on. Libby in the front, reflecting in my eyes, Karen in the back, bending my ear. Wanderers like me, but without a, a car. We became a trio. My momentum and their tender gender. My ears and their stories. Desire called me and gave me invitations to the future. gave me wheels to bring two lovely girls with me. The alliance between the three of us was made strong easily by Desire, naming us as her students. Desire is my bullet. I shoot it a million times. Libby was my target. She smiled and winked. I fantasized that was was to come. Her eyes led me with faint promises. Late that afternoon, I stopped by a truck stop to get gas. There were several carloads of young travelers, and when Libby and Karen got out of the car to stretch their legs, they were greeted by a couple of guys who were looking for a ride to Iowa. The girls said they were going to New Mexico, and they couldn't help. When the two guys asked me which way I was going, I said, Route 80 to Colorado. They looked at me and smiled. Then they boldly made an offer to Libby and Karen to exchange rides. The van they were in was going south towards New Mexico, and I was going in their direction. It didn't take Libby and Karen three minutes before they were unloaded from my car and running over towards the red van filled with wanderers and their eight-track tapes. Like gold stolen from my hands, they were swept from my fingertips, destroying my plans for the evening. I watched them disappear entirely and heard one of my new, entirely male highway companions say to his pal, What a great idea. Exchange riders. I felt like screaming. (laughs) They loaded their backpacks in my car, and I retrieved my bullet with a small pull from a long cord. We all drove off into the sunset. The evening came bringing rain. My blue Volkswagen bug was making a funny noise and I was afraid it was going to blow up. So I began looking for a town to have it checked out. I took the next available exit, which is one that read Iowa City. The two hitchhikers stayed braving the rain in my little two-man tent. We sat part of the night singing songs, but the rain started sweet seeping into the walls and flowed so we all got out of our sleeping bags and tried to fall asleep. But it was the only to escape the uncomfortable wet feeling. Iowa City, Iowa, a beautiful Midwestern town filled with students, professors, musicians, bums, gays, hippies, working class, and welfare recipients. I woke up the first morning in Iowa City crowded on either side by two hitchhikers. 
who had braved the rain with me. They were soaked still, but I was fairly dry. The rain had stopped, so we all got up to go to breakfast at the nearest diner. It felt good to eat. I grabbed the local paper, began looking at the help wanted section. I figured since my car was probably going to blow up, I'd better look for a job since I only had about $68. I was sure going to need some money. If I was going to be stuck in Iowa City, I was going to make the best of it. I nearly choked on my omelet when I spotted the ad paper that read, Guitar Player Wanted for Band. I thought, wow, what a way to make money. I immediately went to the phone and called the the number. My imagination went wild. My dream finally came true. I became a rock star, and the little rock band from Iowa meets instant success. Ring, the phone answers as the woman's voice. Just a minute, she said. Let me get Timothy, my son. A short pause, and Tim answers. Sure. He says, come on up to my house and audition. Tim explained directions, and I kept my fingers crossed that my car would make it, and I said goodbye to the two hitchhikers and took a chance. It was longer red than I thought to see the rapids from Iowa City, and it was about 3 o'clock by the time I got to Tim's parents' house. Tim's family lived in a trailer park. I had never even been near one before. The directions he gave me were perfect, and I arrived at his door and was greeted by his mother. The sky was overcast and the winds were blowing. And he opened the door and I opened into my first mobile home while the dog nipped at my feet. The TV blinked and bad reception. The smell of toast on the toaster and Tim's mother pulling a TV dinner out of the oven with multicolored hair and the bathrobe still on. Her smile reflected all the lies of Crest commercials I felt cold and sorry I had come. I hadn't even met Tim yet. The mobile home was narrow and Tim's mother was ecstatic to have anyone visit her son. She pointed to the end of the hall where I could hear electric guitar sounds. I must admit I felt important. Tim's mother treated me like a rock star who was going to discover her son and make him famous. She escorted me down the hallway past Grandpa's room, past the bathroom, the master bedroom, and to Tim's little room in the back. There was Tim playing on his imitation Les Paul guitar with a little friend of his sitting at his feet, listening. He was actually quite good, and his overweight body didn't slow his fingers one bit. He was a fast lead guitar player. We were fast friends, but musically, we didn't really compliment each other. He seems to know all the songs I'd never bothered to learn, like Proud Mary and Overused Standards. I was looking for something more stylized, original, and working. Tim and I tried to jam for an hour or so, but we understood. I was a folky, he wasn't. We called it quits. Tim asked if I'd like to go for a ride. I said, all right. We both climbed into my Volkswagen bug. It was starting to get dark, so we reached Main Street in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. 
Tim says as we were halfway down the street for the second time, you know what we do around here for fun? I says, what? Tim says, you're doing it. Back in Iowa City that night, I decided to take my Volkswagen into a garage to have it checked. I found a service station with a couple of mechanics who were working late. I pulled the car in, and the two mechanics went to work to diagnose the problem. In about 20 minutes, they reported to me that my transmission was on the blink and that it probably wouldn't make it another 100 miles. My heart sank. I couldn't believe it. I only had $50 on me now. I knew I had to find a job. It looked like Iowa City was going to be my new home. I thanked the mechanics for the free diagnosis and jumped back into the car. Iowa City is a thriving town, about 30,000 people. At this time, most of these towns, people's were colleges related. I drove back. I drove around town for a while looking for people in early evening. It was dark at about 10 o'clock when I spied a young man in foot carrying a guitar. I pulled up to him and yelled, Hey man, want to jam? In those days, people who played guitar were usually very friendly and not and open to communicate with other guitar players. Mike Boyd was his name, and I'll never forget his face, bushy sideburns, stocking cap, and elfish smile. He said, sure, man, threw his guitar in the back. He climbed in the car and said he didn't play too well, but he, if I could teach him anything, he would be grateful. He was quite a bit older than I was, but that didn't seem to bother either of us. And when I told him my story about my car being on the blink and I was a stranger in town, he offered me a place to stay next to his cat and goldfish tank in his small basement apartment. Late into the night, we played guitars and the music was like a dream. We would sink into the sound for hours. The next day, Mike looked at my car and told me it was perfect shape not to listen to the noises because all cars made strange noises. It should be fine to drive a thousand miles if I wanted. He told me to feel at home and stay as long as I wanted. He was so grateful for the songs I taught him. I couldn't believe it. However, my plan was to continue on and now I knew my BW was okay. I gathered my belongings and got ready to leave Iowa City. I hoped I'd return someday and stay with Mike again. Little did I know that I would and how important Iowa City would become in my life. I was stopping just to have someone look at fixing my car when I met Mike Boyd on the street in Iowa City where the students all walked and people were anonymous. It was late, about 9 o'clock, and I stopped to pick him up. He was carrying an acoustic guitar in a case. I knew we certainly had a lot in common. When I saw that he had a Gibson guitar, I knew he was a serious player. At that time in American history, a person would have instant support with a total stranger based on mutual musical interests. And as long as you could jam, you could always make bread. I went to Mike's apartment and we jammed and really liked each other. He offered me a place to stay, and it was I was grateful. 
I stayed with him for a few days while a mechanic looked at my car, and then I was on my way to Colorado. I left Iowa City with a great feeling of friendship with Mike Boyd, whom I left with all my best guitar riffs. I was able to return many months later and live for an extended period. The drive to Colorado Springs from Iowa City on Route 80 was long, cold in my Volkswagen bug. Since my heat didn't work very well, I wrapped my down sleeping bag, the same sleeping bag that I had stolen and later had to buy, around my legs. Then that didn't keep me warm enough. I actually got in the sleeping bag and actually managed to access the brake, clutch, and gas pedal with my feet inside the warm nylon bag. I drove straight through the night, and I was able to actually make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the back seat while I was driving nonstop. I was pretty good at driving while turned around backwards and maintaining my place on the highway by using the lines that were streaming out in the opposite direction at the same time preparing my sandwich. Rudy seemed to go on forever, and the plains of Nebraska turned into the plains of Colorado. I could see the Rocky Mountains and Pikes Peak in the distance. I was heading like a homing pigeon back to the boarding school that I was thrown out of only five months before. I was blatantly disregarding the order that I was not allowed to return. I wanted to walk on the old campus and smell the smell of the school and the hay barn, the mountain air, and the student body. I could feel the warm vibes of Fountain Valley as I drove into Colorado Springs. I stopped at a gas station and filled my tank up with the 28 cents a gallon of gasoline. I wanted to drive to the town past the store where I stole the tent and the sleeping bag and was thrown out of prep school. All my senses tingled as I passed the scene of my crime. I cried and I felt so ashamed and stupid as I drove out of town towards Fountain Valley. Comments and overtones of disappointment echoed in my head. I felt maybe the psychiatrist was right when he said that my act of thievery was a result of some underlying problem, but even to this day, I haven't learned what that was about. I drove right up to the school grounds and parked my car and walked discreetly onto the campus. I was able to get the attention of my younger brother, who was a new student at FES, and he was surprised to see me. Gary, what are you doing here? I was grinning from ear to ear. Shh, I said. And he went behind Sage's dormitory to talk. How are you, Peter? I just drove in from Iowa City. My brother was stunned to see me and agreed to keep quiet, and we began to talk about where where I could stay, and he asked me how long I would stay. Don't know, but I'm planning on going to California. I said, I looked over the 3,000 acres of school property that only a short time ago I was riding my horse across. California, I said. I looked up to the Rocky Mountains and Pikes Peak. The sky was always extra, big and blue. I was feeling really good, even though I was a bit of an outlaw. I felt pretty comfortable back on campus, even though I was warned not to return for at least a year. There I was, and I was determined to find as many of my old compadres as I could. 
That night, I slept in the hay barn above the horses, and I knew everyone by name. The next day, I was able to find some of my old school chums and actually had an apartment they secretly rented in Colorado Springs. It was for secret getaway weekends. I was given a key to the apartment and said I could stay as long as I would. I would vacate when one of them scored a chick and needed a pad for a fling. I was not asked to vacate once in the three months I stayed there. I actually had the apartment to myself and nary a sign of a fling. Each of the four or five guys thought the others were having wild orgies. However, I never told any of them when I heard them brag that I knew the truth. One night, my old buddy that I had gotten caught with on that ill-fated day, John Weedman, came over and we tried to play some music. He was living with the sheriff still and had not returned to his parents' home since he had been thrown out of school because of my shenanigans. That night, as we sat together for a while, it became apparent John was in one of his tripped-out moods. I, I told him I was sleepy. I even took off my clothes and went to bed. John was becoming incoherent and began to... I began to want him to disappear. When John would play guitar and try to sing, my heart would sink. I think in his mind it sounded like the Beatles, but it really sounded... It was a strange, garbled, incoherent, unlistenable, very sad sound. I turned out the lights while John sat in the dark and continued to serenade me with his disturbing, guttural noises. I told him I was falling asleep and he would probably, he should probably go. At that moment, he asked me something that made my heart stop. Can I sleep with you? What? I asked in disbelief. Can I get in bed with you? He asked in a tiny, frail voice. No, John, sorry. I was bewildered as to where he was coming from. I had no idea John had any homosexual tendencies. John got up quickly and left. That was the last time I saw him. Later, I began to wish I had hugged him all night. Maybe that was all he needed, because I found out about two years later that John had hung himself. I stayed in Colorado Springs in Tom Wheat and Max Scott's apartment for about another month or so. I failed at countless jobs and decided to drive back to New York. I was out of money and California was getting to be an impossible prospect. The long ride back was filled with hitchhikers and I picked up a big man named Paul outside St. Louis. He was as big as Paul Bunyan, and I was amazed that he could fit in my car. He offered to help drive, and I listened for hours as he told me adventures of driving a converted school bus with his sister through Guatemala and Central America. He told me that he had left the school bus in Paul Butterfield's farm in Woodstock, New York. He told me that he was headed back here, there, and once he got the bus on the road, he was going back down to Guatemala. He promised he would hook up my VW up to the back of his bus and drive me with him down to Central America. When Paul didn't show up, 
back at my parents' home in Pelham, New York, to take me with him, I decided to go looking for him. I ended up wandering around Woodstock, asking if anyone knew where Paul Butterfield's farm was. Someone finally directed me to Paul Butterfield's farm. Then I arrived. I walked right up to the kitchen door and knocked. I looked inside the door and saw Paul Butterfield himself talking on the phone. He held the phone with his hand and said, What do you want? I had to think quick. I blurted out, I'm looking for a guy named Paul who left the school bus here. I felt pretty foolish. He gave me a dirty look and said, There's no Paul here. I had to bite my tongue. I could tell I wouldn't find my friend Paul anywhere around here. I left discouraged and started driving back to Pelham. On the way down the Taconic Parkway, I hit a patch of ice and went into a skid. They sent me flying over an eight-foot embankment. I landed upside down in my BW. My leg broke the stick shift. My arm broke the steering wheel. My face went through the windshield. After I landed, I could hear the sound of my wheels spinning. I realized, thankfully, that I wasn't hurt, except for a little blood. Bruises, I was able to crawl out of the, the wreck. When I got out, grabbed my guitar and my sleeping bag, I looked up to see a man looking down. Are you okay, he said. I guess so, I said. I thought you were turning onto a side road, but when I got close, I realized there wasn't any road. So I stopped. You okay, he asked again. I looked over at my bug that was flipped over on his back with wheels spinning. I felt the blood that was dripping down over my eyes, and I felt no pain. Nothing was broken, I thought, and in the dark, I couldn't really see how much blood I was losing. I was getting quite dark, and seeing my BW was a lost cause. I grabbed my guitar and sleeping bag and made my way up the embankment that was becoming covered with snow. Can I give you a ride, he said. I was already climbing into his Bentley. I'm going as far as New York City. How about you? I'm going to Pelham Manor. Do you know where that is? I, I think it's about 60 miles. As I opened the car door, the interior light let me see that blood had covered my face in the front of my winter coat. He gave me a handkerchief to wipe my face, and we drove from the scene of the accident. He was very kind and concerned, and he drove me all the way to my house in Pelham. Caleb and my mother were very concerned when I got home. Everyone had a good laugh and agreed it was a miracle that I was alive. And Mr. Bentley, the driver, had happened to be here to give me a ride home. Only you, Zeke, Caleb said with a big smile. Only you. <laughs> it took me almost a week to come to the conclusion that I couldn't salvage my little bug. When I finally I saw, I realized defiantly it was a miracle that I was alive. The entire car was smashed except for a small area where my body was. If I had a passenger, he would have been decapitated. I had no more wheels, and I began to get itchy go to California again. My brother Michael came up with the plan. He managed to find a person that needed an 
a car driven to California, and we were the ones, Mike and his girlfriend Linda, and I and another couple, that were picked up somewhere all set out for the West Coast. When we got as far as Route 80, I asked Mike to stop, and I called my good friend Mike Boyd. Mike Boyd invited us, all of us, to stay overnight, and we did. We had a wonderful time. The next day, Mike Boyd asked if I wanted to stay and felt so nice. He wanted that I said yes. I said goodbye to my brother and the rest of the gang, and they were off. I was left with my guitar and sleeping bag again. (laughs) I stayed with Mike, and it seemed like everybody was very excited that I was in the town. It was heartwarming, and I felt a bit like a celebrity. They all wanted me to stay for tea, the music and music, of course. Is that way for the first few weeks, and then Mike in- announced that his friend Ray DeFlito had a place for me to stay. I got to stay on Ray's porch and on in, in my down sleeping bag, and I rather enjoyed myself. Ray liked to smoke hash from the moment he woke until he dropped. It was like an opium den, and. We also liked to play music together. One night, Ray and I decided to play music at a local bar. There was a lot of people, and afterwards we all went next door and continued the night with music and hash in some guy's apartment until 3 a.m. One by one, people all left, and pretty soon it was me and my guitar and three very homely guys along with one candlelight. I was content to just playing my songs on my guitar, and I hardly noticed that the three homely guys started to have sex all together on the bed. I was glad they didn't ask me to join them, and they actually seemed to be serenaded by my music. As strange as it was, I didn't want to stop playing. They didn't want me to either. I lasted almost 5 a.m., and I finished and picked up my guitar and crept quietly outside. The three homely guys seemed to be thoroughly satisfied and think they were sleeping contently when I left. There was a donut shop open, and I went in to have a cup of coffee. When I sat down, I was mesmerized by my beautiful waitress. Her name was Patty Byers. I was struck pretty hard right away. She glided across the floor and laughed when I told her where I had just been. You must be pretty good, she said, as she put a cup of coffee in front of me. Maybe you could come to my house and help me get such sleep. No problem, I said. I asked her for her phone number, and she gave it to me. I left on a cloud, and I told her I would call her that night. The next few weeks, I spent as much time as I could getting to know Patty Byers. One night she pulled a surprise out of her hat. We were sitting in her apartment getting dangerously close to making love for the first time. Patty opened a small drawer of her coffee table, pulled out some Polaroid snapshots of her in just a bra and panties and a nine-month pregnant bare belly. Boy, was I surprised. She was showing me that she had lost only six months before I met her. 
I tried to tell her, talk to her about it, but she could only cry, and the move for lovemaking seemed to disappear. Patty cried, and I held her all night, and went as, as light-hearted as I could be. I was fairly sure I knew what had happened. She lost her baby. It was gone. She could only cry, and I could only listen to her sobbing. Tried to be light-hearted. She was so beautiful, and I didn't mind just holding her at all.